high point. And uh, we are marching on this morning in our Sustaining Unity series, which I'm excited about. Uh, unity is something that we've talked about quite a bit. If you've been part of church, you know that unity is a thing that comes up again and again and again and again. Um, and the reason for that um, is that, let's see if I can get this correct here. No? Yes? No? Is this going? Is this going? Can I do this? Okay, there we go. Um, battling, being unified is an unending battle. The reason we come back to this over and over again is because this is not the kind of thing we're going to, you know, wake up as a church one day and be like, we did it. We solved disunity. We all love each other and we're all hanging out and everything's perfect. That's not the kind of thing we're ever going to truly arrive at. We can always grow in this can always do better. This is a huge thing, especially during a time like now where we've seen more disunity, more fighting, more, um, you know, in this world, more toxicity and hostility. The church is meant to be different. Uh, I think in the church, there's been this kind of preaching point that's come up again and again, which is, which is totally true, and it's something I've talked about over and over again, but I think it's watered down how difficult this really is. Um, we've heard this message of, okay, the world, you know, they're all over the place, and they, there's nothing really unifying them, and so of course they're going to fight and, you know, be against each other. But we in the, in the church, we're all under the banner of King Jesus. And so this should just kind of be easy. We should all be coming in, getting along. That should be super simple. And it, that is totally true. Like, we are under the banner of King Jesus, and unity should just happen more in the church. Uh, but you've probably noticed that being unified with other believers is still really hard work. It's still really tough. And you can think about your own personal relationships. And, and if you look at the relationships you have uh, with some of the people who feels like you should be most unified with, family, friends, other believers, sometimes those are the people you have the toughest time getting along with. Sometimes those are the relationships that can feel the most difficult. This morning, I want to get more into our interpersonal relationships. I think what can happen with a Unity series is that we can kind of look at it um, kind of as a church at large and be like, High, High Point seems to be doing fine. You know, we're not like punching each other in the lobby or anything like that. So it seems like we're pretty unified. And then our personal role kind of gets lost in that a little bit. But really, for us to have unity, to be a cohesive unit that loves, supports, cares for one another, no divisions, that really rests on all of our individual relationships. How we carry ourselves in our personal life and how we talk to one another, treat one another, whether there's disunity in our relationships, that's going to disrupt unity as a whole. So I want to get real into our own personal lives this morning. What I've noticed is there, there definitely is a difference between us and the world, right? Like, you can see that. If you just, like, go on Twitter or whatever, you're going to see obvious, overt, upfront people hating each other, fighting, arguing, not agreeing on things. I think in the church, we still deal with disunity. It's just a lot more subtle. Our disunity is a lot more under the surface. Hi, welcome to church. Yes, we're so glad you're here. Yes, that everything's fine. We're all fine here. But then under the surface, there's issues, and there's tension, there's hurt feelings and frustrations. 
We're maybe less upfront about it, which I, maybe that's better. I, I suppose I would prefer that than us just like tearing each other down outwardly all the time. But I think in the church, the kind of disunity of the world seeps in. We just sort of push it down, push it under the rug. Let's just kind of ignore that. It's not there. But I think that kind of disunity, it can be just as toxic, can be just as damaging, can tear communities apart just as easily. Now, I don't want you to feel like I'm sort of beating you up because it's not surprising that a bunch of people come together and struggle with unity because the reality is, is that relationships are really hard. Relationships are difficult. Doing them correctly is really hard. You get a bunch of people together, even though we're all believers and like we all follow Jesus, there's still a bunch of different backgrounds, a bunch of different opinions. We got different doctrines. But then on top of that, we are still sinners. We still have sins in our lives. And if you stick a bunch of sinners together, you're going to see some sin. And what sin does, what sin always does every time, sin separates. Sin pushes apart. What was once together unified gets pushed aside. And so I think what happens in the church because we're sinners, and that's just going to be the reality of it, these wedges get into our relationships. These little things that kind of get between us. And you can probably think about this in your own life. That there's people in your life that there's just, there's just kind of something there. There's just something between you. Some hurt feelings, frustrations, bad memories. Eh, I don't really like them. They don't really like me. Eh, this person kind of annoys me. These wedges come between us, and that is sin digging in and pushing our relationships apart. These relational wedges get in there. And I don't know for you whether you have a lot of these or a few, but I'm sure, you, I'm sure we all have some. Maybe for some of you, there's some small wedges that have kind of, you know, pushed into your friendships, just little things that you're not really dealing with. Maybe for some of you, you've got some big wedges. Maybe it's between you and your spouse. You've talked and you've done the conflict thing. Maybe you've even seen a counselor and you've tried to work through it, but uh, you just know your marriage could be healthier. There's just something there. You're not dealing with it. Oh, this is, it's hard to talk about, or is it, let's just kind of put this aside for now. Or we're, just, we're trying to deal with kids right now, so we don't really have time for that. Or maybe there's a wedge just in your family. Maybe it's between you and your kids. You were once close, and they came to you, and you came to them, and that's just kind of not happening anymore. There's something there. And these wedges are really painful, uh, but we don't really like to talk about them. With these relational wedges, they often go unspoken, but rarely go unnoticed. <laughs> these wedges, maybe you have actually talked, and you've done the conflict thing, and you've, uh, you and someone who there's something against you, you actually like, got into it, what's going on. A lot of times, what we do when us and someone else has got something between us, we just set it aside. Let's not get into it. That would be awkward. That's, con that's conflict resolution. I don't want to do that. I got enough other things going on. We rarely speak these, but they hardly ever go unnoticed. <laughs> these relational wedges affect everything. Everything about you and everything about that relationship. When I was starting seminary, I was a middle school director. This was down in Illinois. Um, and there was this one child named Blake. 
and I will never forget Blake. Blake was the difficult kid. And I would genuinely like setting up for youth group, I'd be like, Lord, if Blake could just like not come today, I would really appreciate it. That'd be great. I'll, I'll take him next week, I promise. I'll train, but like, Lord, if you could just give me this one, this one breather, Jesus, thank you, appreciate it. And then Blake would show up and I'd be like, oh my gosh, this is gonna be another week of him distracting everyone and disrespecting me and throwing a fit in us. All right, and I know it's kind of easy to pick on middle schoolers because they're middle schoolers, but there was just a huge wedge between me and him and it just, it affected everything. It affected my whole mood that whole night. And I'm sure I was not always patient, kind, tender-hearted with him, right? It, this, this wedge just was very noticed. It was very noticed by me. I spent a lot of time stressed out about it, a lot of time anxious, a lot of time trying to figure it out, a lot of time being frustrated in my head. These relational wedges, they get in there and, and they really affect a lot of things. These rarely go unnoticed. I think what's happened is I think there's a lot of this going on in our relationships. Like, there's a lot of little seeds of disunity, a lot of little bits of issues in our interpersonal relationships. And it waters down, it hurts the peace we have with each other. And I feel like we've just kind of made peace with this lack of peace. I don't know if this is like a culture thing, kind of sneaking in, or I don't know if it's just like a Midwest nice kind of thing, but it feels like we've just sort of accepted, like, ah, this is how relationships work. Like marriage, man, I mean, marriage is like so hard. We've come a decent way. Like really two people are supposed to like be in harmony, stability, just mutual trust and support. Like that's, that's not even possible. So like, I'm fine, the marriage is fine. We're just gonna kind of leave it as is. Or maybe this is your relationship with your teenager. You go, well, yeah, we were close before, but like, teens don't want to talk to their parents. I heard that once at like a seminar. So, you know, I'll just, I'll just like send them off to the youth group. The youth group will kind of fix them up. And that's just kind of the way it works with teenagers. Or maybe there's that person in your small group. And when they come, you just go, oh my God, we're going to hear them for all of our prayer time, just complaining about their job again. I'm just gonna kind of sit there, but you know what? I'll just kind of grip my teeth and bear it, but kind of like hope they move on to another small group eventually. And like, yeah, this is kind of disrupting our whole small group, but like, it's, I don't know, it's okay. And so we try to make peace with this. We just say, yeah, it's kind of the way it is. I know this is the way the world works. Just, just go talk to anyone. They'll start complaining about someone in their life. It's, like, it's in like two seconds. That's what people talk about. Like, I don't like my boss, and I don't like this person, they don't like me. And I think that mentality has just watered down our understanding of what relationships are meant to really look like, of what God's understanding of relationships are meant to look like. I don't know about you, but this idea that there's just a lot of frustrations and wedges and issues between us, I think God has a better plan than that, yes? Like, I think God is calling us to something greater. I think God's standard for our relationships, his expectation for how healthy, stable, loving, supportive, secure your relationships are meant to be is far higher than our standards for ourselves. We just kind of shoot for like a seven out of 10 marriage or like a seven out of 10 friendship or like this small group feels decent. And then we just leave and we're like, that's fine. It should be okay. God is calling us to more than that. 
God is calling us to relationships that reflect him, that the peace of God is emanating between us. There's something mutually supportive, encouraging about our relationships with each other. God's standard of us, for us, is so much greater. He wants more for us than I think we oftentimes want for ourselves. I think maybe we just have almost never experienced that level of relationship, and so we just kind of assume it's out of reach. But I don't think it's out of reach at all. Jesus gave his very famous Sermon on the Mount. This is in Matthew 5 through 7, if you want to go read it. He really um, lays out his core understanding of salvation and morality, and he does a whole lot of flipping things on their head. It's really great. And he starts out by giving these beatitudes, these lists of blessings, like who are the kind of people God is calling us to be? What do we look like? What are our characteristics? And he says this here in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. What's going on here theologically is that God once was in perfect peace with us as humans. The Old Testament calls it shalom. Shalom has more than just sort of lack of conflict. It's, it's really this very rich word that means like complete or healthy or stable, secure, tranquil. And God had that with us, but then our sin came and sin does what it does and it separated. It separated us from God. And so shalom was lost. And so the whole rest of the scripture is what do we do about this shalom that's been lost, this peace between us and God that was gone. And so Jesus came. Jesus was the Messiah who people expected would sort of be like this war leader guy who would kind of conquer the Romans. And he came and did something completely opposite. He came bringing peace. And Jesus' whole mission was to restore peace between us and God, to fix that. So that you now, right now, you, all of you, can go to the Lord and say, Jesus, I repent of my sins and I trust in you, and you can have peace with God. No more, you know, fear, anxiety, no more lack of trust. It's all gone. The barrier has been torn between us and him, and our relationship is restored. And what's so cool about God is that he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just want to make peace with us. He actually gives us the ability to create that peace with each other, to bring reconciliation and restoration into our relationships, to actually create the kind of shalom God created with us. We get to create with each other. And God says, this is so close to his heart. Like, if you do this, you're his child. Like, this is so close to who he is, then it's like, you are his son. You are his daughter. And so let me just phrase the main point for you this way. Um, people at peace with God make peace with one another. You being at peace with God, if that's you, you are called to be a peacemaker. This is a package deal. This is not, okay, I'll have peace with God, sweet. I'm, that's great. I love that. And then not pursue creating peace, shalom, with each other. It doesn't work like that. Two sides of the same coin. Can't get away without doing the second one if you want the first one. People at peace with God, what they do is they make peace with each other. 
These relational wedges that get in between us, caused by sin, disrupt this shalom. And so what peacemakers do, they go in and they uproot these. And they dig them out. And they do the hard work of addressing them and getting in there and sorting out what's going on and restoring a relationship that was once broken. My question then for you this morning is, are you a peacemaker? Are you doing this? Or maybe more helpfully, how can you grow in this? My immediate reaction, anytime I've read this verse, is like, of course I'm a peacemaker. I'm a nice guy. Come on, I, I totally do this. But the more I've thought about this, the more I think I need to grow in this. And I wonder if the more you thought about this, the more you would realize you need to grow in this as well. What I've noticed in myself is on the way to true peacemaking, I stop short. On the way to true creation of shalom, healthy, full relationships, I stop short. Here's what I do, and maybe you do this too. We often choose peacekeeping over peacemaking. We often choose peacekeeping over peacemaking. Come on, you know this is you. You know you do this. Peacekeeping, what peacekeeping does is it pushes conflict aside. Peacekeeping says, no, no, I'm not going to deal with this. Like, yeah, I I cannot stand my in-laws, but I'm just going to go and do Thanksgiving, and then I don't need to see them for another year, and we're just going to get through it. Peacekeeping says, yeah, there's, there's this conflict, there's some hurt feelings, but like, I, that conflict resolution is not fun. So we're just going to kind of keep the peace here. Peacekeeping also doesn't stand up for your own self. You've probably been hurt by people before and said, well, it's, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll just move on. We a lot of times prefer to keep the peace rather than create, to make real peace. I don't think peacekeeping is much of a solution. (laughs) There's maybe times and places where you got to be a peacekeeper and that's okay. But peacekeeping just sort of incubates the issues. And they sort of sit there and they grow over time. And yet, yeah, maybe it's a little more comfortable, but it's not really a solution at the core of what we need. So how do you become a peacemaker? I've got two practices for you this morning, two practices of peacemakers. I'm just going to be upfront with you right away. These are not easy. (laughs) Being a peacemaker is hard work, but I think it is worthwhile work for the kinds of relationships God is inviting you to have. He says, hey, you can have that. You want relationships that fill you up? You want to belong? You want there to be honesty, trust between you and others? Yeah, go make it. Yeah, you can do it. It's hard work, which is what keeps a lot of us out of this. But it's so worthwhile. The reason I have two practices of peacemakers for us is that there's two sides of these relational wedges. There's my sin against you and your sin against me. And so what do you do about both of those things? What do you do about the stuff you do against other people? And what do you do when someone has done something against you? If you're going to be part of the church and you're going to interact with people, you're going to sin and you're going to be sinned against. Let's just all admit that that is going to happen. So what do you do to restore shalom when that happens? There's a really helpful verse that Jesus says just a few paragraphs down in this chapter we were just looking at. And Nick referenced some of this last week. He said this, 
So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. This is crazy. He says, hey, before you go to church, go reconcile with that person who's got something against you. Like God's outside of time. He can wait. Okay, you can do your offering later. God will accept it just fine. Go first to the person who's got something against you and take care of it. Go deal with it now. This idea of sort of owning up or going and addressing what's wrong, uh, the Bible uses this word confession. Um, And we see this in James 5. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your sins. Admit what you've done. The first practice of being a peacemaker is this. It's to own up. Own up to your side of things. What your brother or sister has against you, go and address it. Figure out what you did and go own up to it. Apologize. Admit it. Take it on. Don't push it away. Don't make excuses. Go and own up to the person who has something against you. Uh, If you're like me, you're bad at this. (laughs) If someone has something against you, what do we say? If they've got something against me, that's their problem. They don't like me, that's on them. And so what do we do? We just say, well, if if they would like to come talk to me, I'm here. And I'll be, I'll be receptive to such a thing. We don't take responsibility for this. When someone has something against us, we just wait and assume it's their problem. Or we just sort of justify it in our brains. Be like, well, if they didn't want me to say nasty things about them, why did they do that bad thing that they did, right? It's like they kind of had that coming. And so, you know, I was just sorry about it, but I guess I had to do that. I think what's happening deep down, and I just, just talking to more and more people, I just believe this, we assume our conflicts are primarily the other person's fault, yes? It's mainly on the other person. The tensions and frustrations in our relationship, it's like, well, you know, once they figure out they're the problem and they want to come begging me for an apology, then yeah, sure, we'll talk. Right? You hear this when married couples talk. Like, oh, if he just did this, if she just stopped doing that, we'd be fine. If this other person kind of fixed it and sorted things out, we'd be good. All the problem is shifted to the other person. Does that work? Does that create peace in your relationships? No, that does nothing but just keep the relational wedge there. I promise you, if you have wedges in your relationships, your sin is a part of it. I mean, there is, you could what about, what about, what about? Yes, there are some extreme cases, sure. Primarily, though, the kinds of relational wedges that kind of pervade our whole lives, we're a part of that dynamic, yes? And just pushing everything off to the other person and this being like, it's their responsibility if they want to reconcile, is so antithetical to Christ and his message of humility, service, Realizing we're sinners, and we're messed up, and we're self-centered, and we have pride. It's just so opposite. I still, I will never forget, um, one of the first times I ever heard Nick talk was at a wedding. This was years ago, like 
eight years ago. And it was maybe the least romantic wedding hobbly I've ever heard in my entire life. Nick was actually more grumpy like eight years ago, which was really fun. And I just remember him doing this wet, like on their wedding day, and him just, this was his whole message, and this has stuck with me like for years and years. He was like, you need to realize you're the big idiot in your marriage. You need to realize you're the dummy, you're the moron, you're causing all the problems. And he just yelled at this couple for like 10 minutes about how they were the idiot. And I was just kind of like, I was kind of like, okay. I wasn't going to this church yet. I was like, what is this guy's problem? Um, but man, I've just, that's just stuck with me. And I just walked out being like, that's so true. <laughs> what would our marriages look like if we all thought that way? What would all of our relationships look like if we thought that way? I'm the dummy here. I messed up. This is on me. What do I need to own up to? I have a very personal and very recent example of this, of how owning up really helped. Um, I have five siblings, which people always like, freak out about when they hear that. Um, I noticed between my oldest sister and I, this kind of relational wedge was sort of developing. There's just like stuff there. And so I was like, hey, Jesse, I like Facebook Messenger. I think this was during church too, which was bad. I was like, hey, Jesse, like, let's talk sometime. And she was just like, no. And I was like, what? You're not supposed to say that. And I was like, why? What's going on? And she was like, you've been pretty rude to me for the last three years. I've felt criticized by you, judged by you, and I haven't really felt loved by you. And I sort of like leaned back in my chair, and my immediate thought was to get defensive. Like, come on, me, me, arguing with you or criticizing something you post is not me being judgmental, like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and I felt the Lord just being like, bro, hold on. You think she's just totally making this up? You think there's just nothing there? And I just got to thinking about it, and I thought of how I've talked to her, the things I've said, the things I haven't said. And I was just like, she's right. She's totally right. I've not been a good brother. And so I messaged her, I said, can we please talk? And she's like, no, you're just going to like try to win me over. I'm like, no, 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 just trust me, let's just talk. And so we talked, we had a conversation, and I just owned up to everything. And I told her, I was like, let me know all the things you're frustrated about, just let me know. And I just owned up to it. I didn't go in being like, I'm going to make her understand my perspective or try to like explain it away. I was like, I'm just going to go apologize for what I need to. Me and my sister have been like best friends ever since that conversation. It is like years of bitterness just washed away. I went over to her house a couple weeks ago and we hung out and played cards with her kids. It was great. She messaged me the next day. It was just like, man, I felt so just at peace with you. It just felt like I could be myself. It's like this relationship was brought back. It was one conversation where I was just like, I'm sorry. Yes, I own up to it. I can't promise this will always happen, but I just went in and I was like, yeah. I'm the one who's messed this up. What can I own up to? When you're owning up, do so quickly. Okay, that's in the passage. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. If you've hurt someone, go and address it. And completely. Uh, just be honest about it. A lot of times we come into an apology, and our, really our main goal is to kind of explain the situation or make excuses. Don't do that. There's a time for some explaining, but first and foremost, just own up. I'm sorry, I have wronged you. Own up completely and quickly. 
This is the first practice of being a peacemaker. When you've done something against someone else, own up. What about the flip side? If someone has done something against you, maybe you're a little more ready for this one, like, oh, this will be good. This isn't any easier. <laughs> this is just as hard, but still just as important. Uh, there's a really famous interaction between Jesus and one of his disciples, Peter. Uh, this is in Matthew 18. Peter, by this point, has had 18 chapters to figure Jesus out a little bit. So he's, he's getting smart. He's, he's kind of known. And so he kind of tries to ask a question that makes him look like he's figuring things out a little bit. He knows Jesus is all about forgiveness. He knows this already, that when someone's done something against me, forgiveness is kind of going to be a part of it. So Peter goes to Jesus, and he says, he says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Seven is a nice biblical number. It means, like, complete. Peter's doing a very, very good job. And Jesus kind of smacks him down, and he responds this way. He says, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Jesus ups the ante. He says, how much you should be forgiving someone who wrongs you is over and over and over and over. And he goes through this parable that we're not going to read, but it really explains what forgiveness is, because I think we get kind of confused on this. This is pretty small. Uh, but basically, in this parable, he tells a story of someone who has a debt with a master, and that master cancels that debt. And then that guy who had the debt cancels goes and holds someone else's smaller debt over them. And then the master gets mad, and like, it's all bad for that person. What's going on here is Jesus is explaining that forgiveness is canceling a debt. It's not holding something against someone that they rightfully should be giving you. When you've been sinned against, there is a debt. The person took something from you, or hurt you, or wronged you in some way, and they owe you an apology. They owe making things right and fixing it. But here's the thing. Jesus tells us in this parable that we as believers cancel those debts. That stuff that rightfully is between us and them. Jesus says, yeah, cancel it. Don't hold it against them. Give that up. The reason for that is that Jesus went to the cross, and Jesus went to the cross to forgive your debt with God. You had a debt to God, Jesus canceled it. But Jesus also canceled the debt of the sin done against you. Jesus also took care of that. And so unforgiveness is really counterproductive. Unforgiveness in our hearts is dishing out punishment on someone when that punishment has already been dished out. There's no need for it. Let it go. Give it up. So that's our second practice of being a peacemaker when someone sins against us. Give it up. Give it up. Don't hold bitterness, resentment toward them. Forgive them. Don't keep unforgiveness stewing in your heart. Doesn't matter how bad it was. Doesn't matter how many times they've done this. Give it up. The debt that they owe you, let that go. This is really hard for us. Uh, forgiveness is incredibly difficult. Now, a couple of clarifications here. Uh, forgiveness doesn't mean what was done to you is okay. Forgiveness doesn't mean that God isn't frustrated or sad on your behalf. It doesn't mean that you don't need to be sad or upset about what happened. Forgiveness doesn't mean trust. It doesn't mean, hey, we're best friends now. All forgiveness is is saying, I'm going to leave the judgment to the Lord. I'm going to give it up. God will deal with this. 
how God is going to deal with it. I'm going to give that up. I'm going to stop holding on to that. Unforgiveness, really, it it benefits, first and foremost, you. Uh, Or, sorry, forgiveness, first and foremost, benefits you. Getting rid of unforgiveness benefits you. Unforgiveness is just a poison. It consumes us and corrodes us. It destroys us. Forgiveness is holding on to this frustration, this bitterness, this resentment. Oh, I can't believe you did that. Oh, I'm going to remember that. Oh, you did this thing to me. I'm not going to let you forget it. And forgiveness creates this constant sort of burden on our shoulders. I don't know if you've ever, like, won shower arguments with someone over and over again. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's unforgiveness. <laughs> I do that too. Like, we just, like, let these things run in our minds. And it's not, it's doing nothing to that other person. It's just affecting us. It's just a poison that we just sort of keep taking, hoping it does something to the other person. I'm really convinced that unforgiveness is just at the core of so many problems. Unforgiveness cuts off spiritual growth. When two Christians just can't reconcile, I I am convinced there's unforgiveness there. There's just got to be. Because forgiveness, what it does is it brings freedom. Forgiveness is letting go. It's giving that up. Giving up this weight of dishing out judgment and punishment on the other person, just giving up to the Lord. It's freedom. So I can be free. I don't got to let this person run around in my head anymore. I don't got to bear this frustration. And forgiveness pulls up these relational wedges. If there's unforgiveness between two people, well, unforgiveness belittles people. Unforgiveness is critical. Unforgiveness hopes the other person fails. Unforgiveness brings up what they did and weaponizes it against them. Unforgiveness goes and gossips about it with someone else. Unforgiveness keeps these relational wedges firmly intact. So if we're going to pull those up and be peacemakers, we've got to forgive. We've got to give it up. Just a couple of helpful tips here. I'm way over time. Um, just a couple ways, because this is still really difficult, right? Forgiving is hard. And maybe you've really been hurt by people, and if you would share your story, we would all be like, oh, it sounds so hard. And a lot of you have been through serious hurt. So if you're trying to figure out, how do I really forgive people? A couple things. Um, one is lean on the Lord. Lean on the Lord. This is something only God can do through you. Like, you are incapable in your heart of doing this. The reason you can forgive is because God has forgiven you. You've had your debt taken care of. So this is something you've got to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need your help with this. Remember the gospel. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Lean on the Lord in this process. Who lays bring um, Find the facts. Find the facts. I found this to be incredibly helpful. Um, A lot of times, the reason unforgiveness just sort of builds in our hearts is because we are getting frustrated at our own version of the story. We're getting agitated at our own side of things. It can be very helpful to sort of step outside the situation and analyze what's really going on. Like, what's happening in the life of that other person? Uh, you remember Blake from earlier. Uh, well, I had this relational wedge with Blake, and I was just like, I, c- I can't hate a child in my youth group, but like, this is not, this is not okay. And so I was like, I got to get to know this person <laughs> and figure out what's going on. And I started to just talk with Blake more and hang out with him. It turns out he had all kinds of stuff going on. 
all kinds of terrible stuff. And it's like, and I know this too, as like the youth guy, it's like, yeah, the, the, the most frustrating kids are the most troubled, like it's just a fact. Um, and so I was able to empathize so much more with him when I really figured out what was going on. And it really helped me to truly forgive and make peace with Blake being a part of my youth group. Find the facts. Uh, and then finally, recognize the reverse. It can be really helpful when you're struggling to forgive someone. Think about, like, turn the tables. How do you want to be treated by others? Do you want people to hold your sin against you? Bring up your failures? Be suspicious of you? Yeah, I remember when you did that thing. Hey, yeah, you were the guy who said that, right? When you flip things, you go, oh, yeah, I, I really hope people have grace on me. I really hope my sins and my mistakes don't define the rest of my life. I hope people cancel my debt. Flipping things and recognizing the reverse can be incredibly life-giving. For me, the, the people who I most struggle with unforgiveness toward are authority figures, leaders in the church. I don't know if it's just based off my background or whatever, but I can feel really burned or frustrated by leaders in the church, and maybe that's a lot of you. Uh, and that's a really easy sort of um, suspicion to keep confirming over and over again. Like, if, if you're suspicious that, like, the leadership, like, doesn't really care about you or they don't really know what they're doing, that's a really easy thing to kind of convince yourself over time. And I've just noticed pocket of unforgiveness in my heart growing. And it's been incredibly helpful for me to say, well, how do I want people to treat me when I'm in leadership? Do I want to be defined by mistakes? Do I want people automatically suspicious of me? Do I want people to be like, oh, Luke doesn't really care? No, of course not. I want people to respect me. I just know I'm going to like lead a church one day and there's going to be some dumb kid fresh out of seminary coming in and being like, I can do this better than you and I'm going to want to slap him in the face. It's like, okay, me being that guy right now is helping no one. Like, how do I want to be treated when I'm in that position? Recognize the reverse. This is really hard stuff, right? Like, the stuff I've done against you, I gotta own up to it. The stuff you've done against me, I gotta give it up. I gotta forgive. This might feel really humbling and really difficult, realizing you're the issue. But this is also really, really good news. Because if your relational health is based off everyone else getting their act together, you have no way of moving forward. There's nothing you can do. You can't change other people. You can't fix how they think or what they believe. You can change yourself. You can fix who you are. You can work on your own actions. And so, well, yes, being a peacemaker is hard work. It's humbling. It's difficult. You got to get in there. You got to have the conversations, do the conflict, forget. Like, it's all that hard stuff. But if you recognize that you're the one who can really start to produce relational health in your relationships, God is going to use that. There's been a verse, just to close here, that's been significant for me through a lot of my life. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I would love for us to take this verse to the extreme. And rather than focusing so much on the if it is possible and if it depends on me, which is, I feel like, what we focus on, let's assume it's possible because we have the Holy Spirit who wants to work miracles, yes. And let's assume it does depend on us. And get in there and be peacemakers. People who bring shalom into our relationships. God says, you can have it. You can have the kind of belonging 
Mutual trust and support. Thriving community. Go get it. And I just got to believe if we take on the role of peacemakers, we're going to create a shalom in this place. And God's going to work, and it's going to be a witness, and he's going to use it in our lives. Let me pray for us. Lord, Father, I pray that you would help us. Bringing peace into this world, it's, it's humbling. It's really difficult. But God, it's such good work. For the destination, it's, it's worth that bumpy road. It's worth, rather than just pushing things aside or ignoring it, getting in there and, and realizing, yeah, there's, there's stuff I got in my relationships. My relationships can be better. There's things to work on, things I can confess, ways I can forgive. So Lord, I pray that we would be brave, fearless, running into our relationships, leaning in quickly, directly, and being peacemakers. Father, please help us do that, Lord, in your name. Amen. We're going to have a time right now of some reflection before...